Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Good day, everyone. This is Tony Moskal with your high school sports podcast on the Believe Podcast Network, Los Angeles' number one sports podcast network. The only place with a show for everyone. We believe in our teams. Do you believe? The NFL season is in full swing. You might not be at the game this year, but you can still be in on the action at Bet Online. Some of the action I'm taking is that the Jets will end up the season with zero wins. Poor Trevor Lawrence. He's going to be wearing the green and white for that dumpster fire of a franchise. Who is the class of the AFC? Is it the Chiefs? Is it the Bills? They beat the Steelers. Are the Steelers in trouble? Who's the class of the NFC? Is it the Seahawks? Is it the Rams? We will find out, but place your bets. The NBA is coming. Are the Lakers going to repeat? Who's going to challenge them? The NHL is on the way. From game spreads and totals to team, player, and coaching props, BetOnline gives you more options to wager than any place online. And there's always the online casino as well. It never closes. So head to betonline.ag today and take advantage of all the great sign-up bonuses. Again, that's betonline.ag and sign up today. BetOnline, your online sportsbook experts. Joining me this week is someone who has a lot of experience as a teacher, coach, athletic director, administrator. He's the president of the California Coaches Association. He has a master's degree in coaching and athletic administration, an administrative credential, education specialist credential, a bachelor's degree in religious studies. He was a football coach for 16 years, eight as a head coach, an athletic director for six years, where all the schools he was at set records for most championships won. He's an author of several books and seems like the type of person you want running not only your athletic department, but your school as well. Chris Ford, welcome to the podcast. Hey, Tony, I appreciate you having me on. Thanks for for the invite, and I look forward to, to talking with you. Let's start at the beginning. Everybody has a path or story, how they got into education. What was your path into the teaching and coaching field? So when I was a uh, junior in high school, my, my playing career came to an end through a car accident. Uh, car accident I was in between my sophomore and junior years. And so my, my junior year of high school, I started uh, actually in a wheelchair not being able to uh, walk. And, and my, again, my football playing career came to a, a crashing halt. I broke every bone in my leg. I was in the hospital for uh, almost a month. I almost lost my leg. And uh, what that did was my schedule, you know, my class schedule changed a little bit. And one of the things I did was I became a, an intern. I think they called him a teacher's aide for my athletic director, uh, who was also our head football coach in my little one high school town, little town called Fallbrook down in San Diego County. And I sat in my athletic director's office every day, helping him do, you know, athletic director secretarial work, you know, go file this, go call these officials, go call this coach and, you know, verify the game. And, and I thought, man, this is a, this is a great way to make a living. And coach pack was someone who I had looked up to from uh, five or six years old, you know, going to Fallbrook football games. And, and, uh, so it, it was, it was a really neat time for me. And, uh, I started thinking of that time, man, I'd love to love to get into this, uh, this line of work for the rest of my life. Uh, my senior year, I, I started uh, coaching. Uh, I coached the freshman. Uh, freshman football team while I was a senior in high school because I wasn't able to play. I still hung out with my my buddies, you know, every every chance I could with the varsity team. But uh, I was I was coaching the freshman kids, so uh, that, that's kind of how I got into working with teenagers and and working at schools. 
How weird was it though, being a senior at the school and coaching, you know, the freshmen and you guys, you see each other passing in the hallways and you're hanging out with your buddies talking about guy stuff. And they're like, Hey coach, how you doing? Yeah, it was, it, it was very interesting. Uh, coach Pack had to tell me a few times, uh, you you've crossed the bridge into coaching here and, uh, you're not buddies with these kids anymore. And, and that was hard, you know, shoot, I was 18 years old, Tony. So that was a very, you know, very blurred lines. Um, you know, we would be even out, you know, on the weekend doing what teenagers do and in, in avocado groves and, and see some of my own players, you know, roll up with their older brothers or sisters or something. And I'd have to, you know, get away from those kids. But yeah, that, that was a little bit of a challenge, no doubt. Even, you know, seeing them at, at a dance and, Oh, Hey coach, how you doing? You know, that was, uh, it, it was different. Not, not a lot of guys are in that boat coaching, uh, as a senior in high school, but you know, I, I absolutely loved it. What lessons did you take away from that being so young? You know, we tend to kind of, some people either just soak up everything like a sponge or they, they just go off and do their own thing. But what did you take away from that first year coaching? You know, I'd say some of the guys I coached with, I had just played for, you know, three years before that. And so some of them didn't really see me as a peer. And I don't think they should have. Don't don't get me wrong. I was I was not on their equal level. I was basically an assistant to this to the offensive line coach. So I was coaching the offensive line and, you know, they, they kind of saw me as a gopher as well. Hey, go do this. Go do that. But I'll tell you what it did, Tony, was the lesson I took away from that is if you want to be a, a, a well-rounded coach and become someone who has value, be able to do what any, anything that your head coach or those coordinators or, or even your assistants um, do anything they want, anything that needs to happen. And so I think I learned that first year of coaching. It's not just about uh, Thursday afternoon. You know, for us, we played our freshman games Thursday nights, I think at five or six o'clock. It's not just about those Thursday night lights, you know, or those Thursday afternoons at 3.30. It's about everything else that goes into the program, charting plays. You know, I, I obviously, as a, as a freshman in high school, I had never had a clue how much those freshman coaches worked for me. And so I got to learn real quick. There's a lot more that goes into being a coach than just, uh, than just the games. And so, you know, that mentality of I'll, I'll do whatever it takes to help this program, you know, washing uniforms, like I said, uh, charting stats. Um, you know, getting equipment out before all the rest of the coaches get there. That's something I learned how to just work very hard. And, and uh, you know, I've, I've, I've encouraged coaches all along the way to, to do that same thing. Find, find a way to really stand out uh, within that program outside of game night. And I think for a lot of the young coaches, they see, you know, hey, I'm only on the freshman team. I want to I wanna be a coordinator. I want to be a head coach. I want to be this. And I think in my experience, a lot of these young guys – they forget how important, number one, how important the freshman level is because that's a year of development. And yeah, you got to put in your time. You got to drag in the equipment, drag out the tackling dummies. Back in the day, help line the field with chalk. Uh, and, yep, you yep. know, I, I think a lot of guys kind of miss that. Yeah, no, you're right. Uh, and I, I don't know, you know, I'm, I'm, I consider myself young, Tony, at, at 44 years old, but I think a lot of the younger guys uh, these days, you know, a lot of the younger coaches these days, they really have, they, they really do have a hard time working very hard, you know? And I, I hear that from head coaches all the time, or I, you know, I, one of the things I do on the side, I kind of consult and help coaches with their job search. And these guys who, 
you know, they coach two years of football and they think they're, they should be a varsity coordinator all of a sudden. And that's just not always how it works out. That is the way sometimes you're, you know, the trajectory of your career lands you in, in some lucky spots or something like that. But, but you're right. I, I don't think enough guys really, really, you know, I hate to use the word grind away because, you know, we're, we're coaching football. We're not, we're not working, you know, that hard compared to a lot of folks, you know, with blue collars. But uh, I, I do think a lot of it's uh, been lost o- over the years. Yeah, I, I, I tend to agree. And I, you, you've been in education a long time. I've been in it a long time. And I think to some extent we see that with, with a lot of kids today. They don't really want to put in the work, whether it's in the classroom or the field. It's like, hey, I started on the freshman team. When are you moving me up to varsity? Or, hey, hey, yeah. coach, I, I turned in my assignment. When are you going to grade it? Well, it, it's three weeks <laughs> late. I'll get to yeah. it. There you go. You yeah, coached the yeah. JV team at Fallbrook. Then you moved to Linfield Christian where you coached JV, become the head varsity coach. For you, what were the biggest adjustments you had to make going from not only the freshman team to the JV team, but JV to varsity, and then being in charge of the entire program? So the, I'd say the biggest adjustment, you know, going from that JV JV head coach up to, you know, at Linfield, I was a JV head coach and then a varsity um, uh, offensive line coach, special teams coordinator type of thing. So I, I had a lot of touch with the varsity. Um, the, the biggest change just comes with it's once you become a head coach, it's a it's literally it's like a 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year job. Um, and and especially these days, you know, everybody's got a cell phone. Uh, parents, kids think that, you know, oh, they can just text you to solve their problems no matter when that is. And so now, you know, head football coaches, that, that was the biggest change. You're, you're not just, you know, um, leaving at the end of practice. You sh- you're the last one out of there, you know, a lot of times. Last one out of that locker room, making sure the lights and clothes and the doors are locked. And, and uh, you know, I, I think that's, that's the biggest difference is that just it, it becomes an absolute full-time job. Not to say that, you know, some coordinators or, or head JV coaches aren't the same, you know, working a, a year-round job like that, but, but there's no doubt. You know, once you, once you take over as a head coach, it's, it's an all-encompassing, all-consuming affair. And then you've got the paperwork, the scheduling, the buses, the travel, the, the scheduling, and just all kinds of stuff. When you became a head coach, did you find yourself trying to delegate more and, and maybe have somebody else deal with all of the so-called administrative type stuff? Um, actually, I think one of the lessons I learned, Tony, was that you do need to do that. You know, the first year I was, I was 27 years old, head football coach, you know, head varsity coach. I tried to do way too much stuff on my own, to be honest with you. Um, and, you know, I, I kind of realized you're, you're heading for a burnout if you try to do this, you know, without – but part of that, Tony, was I was I was on campus. I think I only had, you know, we had a staff of nine for JV and varsity, and only two of those other guys were on campus. And so, you know, w- when you got so many off-campus guys, you you kind of got to do a lot more of that, you know, on your own. Uh, my defensive coordinator, you know, one of my best friends to to date, still, you know, he's a fireman, so. Uh, you know, we, we he wouldn't even be at practice all f- four days a week, you know. So just kind of nature of that specific job at Linfield, I, I was kind of on my own more than more than what you should be. 
but I learned after a year, uh, going into that next year, like, Hey, I can't, I can't be doing washing all, you know, 40 uniforms every single Sunday. I need some help there because I'm also the offensive coordinator, the special teams coordinator. I'm dealing with the recruiting stuff now. I'm dealing with the parent stuff now. Like you said, I'm working with the AD on our, you know, transportation. And so I, I definitely have to, you know, pawn off or get rid of some of these things. And so like with uniforms, for instance, you know, we, we made a schedule that, Hey, cause we had just bought these brand new, amazing uniforms. And part of what my AD at the time said was we want, you know, we want these to be washed, but we don't have the money to send them out. So we need, you know, our staff washing them. So, so we just divided that up. You know, I think instead of me doing it every Sunday, I would do it every fourth or fifth Sunday, you know, um, instead of uh, charting out all the offense, I, I relied heavily that, that second season on, you know, two assistants to help. So, uh, I, I definitely learned after one year, you, you cannot do it all yourself. You better, you better, uh, spread some of that out. You know, thank God at the time I wasn't, I wasn't married or had kids. There's, there's no way I could have done everything it takes, you know, that, that first year, if I, if I did not learn to, to, uh, delegate. Now, how important is it for you now or when you were a head coach to then make sure you had as many on campus guys as possible, because then you've also got to deal with, hey, little Johnny got in trouble in his math class. You know, um, little Bobby did did this and got sent to the principal's office. And you have to deal with all that also while you're teaching. But then having some guys on campus as well to kind of help you, I don't want to say corral the herd, but but be a presence there for the kids. Yeah, no, it's 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 absolute key. And, uh, you know, fortunately, I've worked for some really good administrators who understood that, um, who you know, at Capistrano Valley Christian, for instance, where I was for five years, our, uh, you know, small private school, our superintendent, he, he would bring me in there um, along with the principal, you know, and he'd give us a heads up on, you know, maybe a job opening. Like, hey, this this teacher just told me they're retiring or they're they're leaving for another job or something, you know, or, hey, he told me once uh, I went to him with the resume of a guy who I really coached Del Balso is his name, CJ Del Balso. He's uh uh, he's down in Irvine at a school. He's just a tremendous strength and conditioning guy. And I was looking for a strength and conditioning coordinator. I was looking for a defensive coordinator. And I, I, I heard of him. I got his resume passed down over to me. I took it into my head of schools there, superintendent. I was like, hey, Dr. Baker, we I would love to get this guy on campus. You know, is there a way to make this happen? And he looked over it. And he this guy had some really strong technology background on his resume and in his, in his work experience. And so he said, you know, I've been thinking about creating this uh, position, director of technology. You know, this was 12 years ago, Tony, before every all the kids had laptops and all that. But he said, I've been thinking about creating a director of technology position because we're starting to want to give kids one to one laptops, someone to manage that whole program. This might be the guy, you know, to do that 20 hours a week and the other 20 doing uh, strength and conditioning for all the sports. So when you work for an administrator like that, who really gets it, who understands like, Hey, they value athletics. Uh, that is that is just so key. I've worked at other places where it almost hurt you to be a coach. Like I would take a resume in to the boss. Hey, I got this guy. You know, we got this math spot open. This guy's coach. We're looking for a new head coach in this sport. What do you think? And it'd be like, ah, put him in line with everybody else. And like I said, I've I've almost seen it hurt that candidate. Because there's, you know, there's a knock on coaches that they can't teach, which is is really ridiculous in a lot of senses. So, uh, you know, I, I've seen it go both ways on different campuses, Tony. Uh, there's no doubt that, you know, the campuses, the the districts who value athletics, 
they're going to value having as many folks on campus as possible. Now, you moved to Capo Valley Christian in 06, and you're the head coach, become the AD. You win a league championship in 2010. Five total for the school was the most ever. But in 2011, a, a new superintendent comes in, brings in a new guy, brings in a new guy here, and, and you're out. And, you know, yeah. what was your mindset after that? You, you, you win a league championship. You, you do a great job, and then all of a sudden somebody comes in and says, you know, hey, you're out. Does that kind of make you – not doubt, but kind of question, wait a minute, what's, what's your purpose here? Are we really doing this for the kids? Oh yeah, no, ab absolutely. I mean, um, yeah, I, I had worked, you know, one superintendent hired me. I was there for four years under him. He retired, new guy came in. Um, and you know, Tony, w one thing that happened there, uh, on, I haven't talked about it too much, but the, the first day he was there, he brings me in, wanted me to fire a head coach, a basketball coach, because, uh, before he'd even started, these parents were reaching out to him. One parent was reaching out to him about this uh, this basketball coach they wanted fired. Well, this guy, he was a a a very very good coach. Um, his team's always over overachieved, and as an athletic director, I'm going to take a guy who overachieves and is doing all the right things with his kids. And uh, anyway, I get pulled in the office July 1st, the guy's first day there. And he's, you know, I, I think this coach needs to go and, and without even asking me questions. And uh, it, it was amazing. And and I, I didn't do it. You know, I, I told him that I wasn't going to fire him. Uh, he, he didn't ask me to fire him, but he basically hinted at that. And uh, kind of from there on, the, the writing was on the wall for me. I, I you know, even though we went and had a, a tremendous year, like you said, you know, um, I think that record still stands there. The most league championships won in one season at this, in one year at the school. And, but, uh, you know, yeah, he, I felt what I felt was depressed. I mean, I, it, it was, it was real troubled time in, in my life with my wife was a stay at home mom, two kids, one on the way. And here I'm looking for a, a job really the first time in my life. I'd never, I'd never really had to look for a job before, you know, and I think I was, I don't know, 34, 35, 36 years old, somewhere around there. Um, did not have a teaching credential because I'd spent 10 years in the in the private sector. And so when you don't have a, you know, a public school credential, that kind of limits you. So it was uh, it was a it was a very, very difficult time there for me for a little while. What is it these days with with coaching and administrators and you've got successful coaches all over, you know, not only the southern section, the state of California, but everywhere. But one parent calls and complains and the coach has support of everybody else. But more often than not, the coach ends up getting the boot because of one parent. You're an administrator. What do you think is, is the impetus behind that? Or what goes into their thinking as an administrator about, hey, one parent complains, so we got to get rid of you? Uh, it's a lack of thick skin, Tony. It's, it's administrators who are afraid of their jobs. Uh, afraid of losing a job because if you tell that parent no, um, they'll go to the board and the board will put pressure on you. Remember, I told you about, you know, I think I could have been at Capital Valley Christian for a little while, maybe if uh, if I had done what you know my superintendent there asked me to do. But uh, there, what, what happened on that story, Tony? I got the head coach and the mom together uh, in my office about a month later, and uh, boy, we had an hour and a half long meeting, and it was great. And, and they walked out of there hugging, thanking me for bringing them together. We got them both on the same page, and it was a beautiful thing. 
But I think the superintendent didn't like that I, I wasn't following his direction. So sometimes, you know, a lot of a lot of athletic directors in that spot would have taken those marching orders and just moved out that head coach just because of that one parent. And, uh, you know, I supervised this guy for four years. I didn't have one complaint, not one in four years about a coach. And then you get one that comes up because of playing time. Uh, you get just superintendents or principals who just don't have a thick enough skin to deal with some of that heat. They don't want to do things. They don't want to work hard. They don't want to have hard conversations. Um, I've worked before for uh, a superintendent who, um, you know, a football coach won a league championship. A, uh, you know, parent and student complained four months after the season. They complained to the superintendent who had a one-on-one -on -one meeting with the kid and then uh, made, made, made the coach basically, you know, go and address some of his policies and procedures because of this one complaint. It's just, and then that coach ended up going, you know what? We just want to see, uh, we just want a league championship for the first time in almost two decades at this school. Um, and, and here I am being questioned about playing time for one kid. This probably, this probably isn't a very good place to work, you know? And so um, they, they lost a coach there because, superintendent didn't want to use the the chain of command and tell that parent, you know what, you need to go talk to the coach first. Uh, and so I, I think that's what happens is unfortunately you get, you just get these administrators who, who don't, don't want awkward, tough, difficult conversations. They don't want to say no to parents. Um, and uh, I've, I've, you know, I, I have been there. I'm, I'm uh, a principal now and I've had some tough conversations mainly right now. It's been about teaching because sports really aren't going on, but, uh, you know, we, we, we have to support our, our teachers and coaches as long. And I tell my teachers this, as long as you've got a proper syllabus, that's outlining the expectations for your, your classroom, how are the teachers graded or how are the kids graded? How are they evaluated? How, how are you going to deal with their communication? You know, as long as you're living up to, to your end of the bargain, uh, we're going to support you. We're going to have your back, you know, and, and I've told that to my coaches over the years, have, have coaches meetings at the beginning of the year, put as much in writing as you can live and die by those policies. And, and we're going to support you. You know, we're not going to entertain parents who, who want to complain about playing time or want to complain that, you know, uh, little Johnny was, was pushed too hard. Now there's, there's a whole, whole big difference between, you know, pushing a kid or yelling and cussing at a kid. I'm not, I'm not giving coaches a green light for that. But uh, I, I think at the end of the day, people are just so quick to judge, pick up that phone, go right to the top. And then those people at the top, they just want it off their desk. So they're going to do whatever they can to solve the problem quickly uh, without, you know, without those hard conversations and work. Meanwhile, there's a coach that apparently pushed all the right buttons, played all the right kids because they win a championship. But because one person's not happy, just it, it absolutely floors me. And you, you've kind of taken me to a direction about culture where it seems wherever you go, you win, whether it's as a head coach, an athletic director, you know, at Excelsior Academy, they won three league titles in 10 years. Your first year there is an AD, they win six. In one year, they win six. And in the previous 10, they won three. What is it that you do to build a culture with within the staff, within the players, within your coaches that makes things so successful. Yeah. 
good research. I, I appreciate you did some research there, Tony. Um, I, I have had much, much more successful career as an AD than a head football coach, no doubt about that. And I've, I've also found a lot more joy as an athletic director. And it was years ago, I kind of decided, you know, I want to go into full-time athletic director, school administration. I came to kind of that, that, that point in the road after I got let go in, in 2011 at Capital Valley Christian. Do I want to pursue coaching for long term or, you know, administration for long term? And I decided I wanted to pursue that administration, that athletic director type administration, school administration over a life of coaching, because I felt like I just really got a lot more out of being an athletic director. And one of the things I love doing is hiring, hiring coaches, because that just sets the culture. And so I've got a real passion for that human resources side of things. Um, you know, we, we did the same thing at Capital Valley Christian. It was like my first year, one league championship and then two and then three and then five, you know, in my final year there. And so um, at Excelsior, you mentioned, you know, those six league championships in one year, uh, groundbreaking. They've they've never done that again. I think maybe one, three or four in a year. It all goes down to hiring, how, how you're hiring, who you're hiring, because at, at a lot of schools, uh, it's, I firmly believe it's about having good athletes, great coaches. In high school, you can, you can have a lot of success with just good student athletes, not have to rely on those great ones to come in. Like a lot of coaches these days rely on transfers. They don't build their program from the ground up. Um, not all, but we definitely see that culture. And, and so if you hire the right guys who can build a strong program who can treat kids right, who can who can sell a vision that, you know what, we are going to win. When I went into Excelsior and I, I shared the fact that, you know, my, 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 my slogan there was, you know, we're going to build character and win championships. And I saw a guy, a couple coaches at a back table were kind of snickering about that. And I, I called them out. I said, you guys don't think we can win here? Well, you know, we, you know, welcome to the school. You know, we don't, we don't win here. And I said, if you don't want to win here, then leave. You know, you can leave. I will find somebody else. And so um, that's a that's that's how you do it. it. It's how you hire, who you hire, having a real, you know, doing that in a in a real slow, uh, in a slow way, casting a very wide net, doing your due diligence on those guys. Um, it's it's just really really important. I, I really believe that's how you you set up a culture of, of winning. And then, like I said, you talk about it with the kids, you know, um, we, that building, building character, winning championships. I told our coaches, that's how we're going to judge your effectiveness here. You know, um, you don't have to win a championship to be an effective coach, but are you doing the things to put your program in that position someday? You know, it's, it, it takes a lot for some programs to, to win a championship. Sometimes it's going to take a few years to do that. Sometimes you can you can capture that in just a year by by how you uh, by how you treat and teach those kids. So uh, long, kind of long winded answer, but I think more than anything, it just starts with it starts with the vision uh, of of winning, telling the kids you're no different than every other, you know at Excelsior. We, we're a school of a thousand kids competing against schools of uh, two hundred. And, and they had had that lackluster success over a decade. There was no reason we should not be winning. It was all about the coaches. You know, in my interview there, uh, I talked about the softball program having like a 35% win percentage the last decade. 
well, they, they asked why that was. And I said, well, you, you've had six coaches in 10 years, you know, so you're, you're hiring really poor and you're not supporting those guys. And so, um, uh, that's, that's just what's key is, is that vision and then hiring to help, uh, bring success to athletic programs. And then keeping some consistency. And, and I think yep. going from an assistant coach to a head coach, it's kind of like going from a teacher to an administrator. How yeah. similar are they? And do you do anything different now as a principal with your staff than you did with your coaching staff? No, it's, it's, it's very similar. I mean, I, I've been surprised how similar, you know, being an athletic director, trying to inspire your head coaches, try to hold them accountable to doing a great job for kids. Very similar to being a principal and, and doing those same things, you know, casting a vision for how this school year is going to go, holding those teachers accountable to doing great things for kids. Uh, it's, it's very, it's very similar. I'd say, uh, you know, there's, there's a lot more moving parts, obviously being a principal, uh, you know, a, a lot more moving parts more than I, you know, maybe even anticipated coming in as a first year principal, but, um, it, the job is very similar. You know, I think, I think some looking back, you know, some of the greatest administrators I've ever had people I really enjoyed working for, they, they were those assistant principals, principals, ADs who, who had been coaches, you know, who knows what it's like to roll up your sleeves, work hard, get dirty for the best of the team. You know, no job is too big or too small for us to complete. And that's, that's our approach as an administration, you know, with, with running our school now. And uh, I think that, you know, like I said, the, the great ones I've worked for, that's the, the approach that they brought, you know, and I've always enjoyed working for coaches. Man, I, I agree with you. And I, I think there's something to be said with, with having an administrator that was a coach because they understand that grind. And then there are those that, you know, they do it, they move up and they forget what it was like to be that person that was the assistant, that was the intern, that was grinding. And, and it seems like some people just have a short memory about that. Yeah, they do. And that's, that's unfortunate. I mean, I, I think what happens is you get, um, and I, I, you know, this is my third year as a public school administrator, two years as an assistant principal. I, I've had to remind myself, you know, get your butt up out of the office and go out to the campus. You know, uh, it's something I love doing. I love being out at lunch with all the kids. Obviously, this year is way different. Um, I love being out at the bus lane in the morning, you know. Um, but at, as you come, as things start stacking up on your desk, you get busy. Um, you have to you have to work hard and remind yourself um, to, to get out of that office. And that's where I think a lot of administrators, Tony, they, they just forget, you know, and, and I, I tell my APs, you know, now that are working right for me. And, and I've told a couple teachers I've gotten to know, you know, this year closer than others. Um, you know, what, once I, once I forget what it's like to, to be a teacher, that's when, you know, that, I think that's when you become a poor administrator, you know, when, when you forget what it was like, uh, when you start talking to teachers, hold them accountable for something and they go, hey, do you remember what it was like? And, and you know, unfortunately, sometimes now, Tony, you got you got principals or assistant principals. They haven't been in the classroom in, you know, 10 or 15 years now trying to lead teachers. Um, you know, right now we're doing this distance learning thing. And I've said to my staff so many times they probably get sick of hearing it. But I, I tell them all the time, I have no idea what it's like to be a distance learning teacher. I, I, something I never had to do, you know, I I taught some courses at Azusa Pacific where it was all online, but that was way different, you know, way different than teaching high school kids on in distance learning. So sometimes when they come to me for, you know, answers, 
I, I just can't. I'm very honest with them. I, I don't know right now. This is such a unique time, you know. So I think that once once administrators start thinking they have all the right answers, once they start spending, you know, way more time in their office than out in the quad with kids, that's when I, I just I've seen them kind of lose their way. And, and then they, they have unrealistic, unrealistic expectations on their teaching staff. And then their teachers get, you know, they get burned out or tired of that principle. And and it's it's not a good way to, to run a school. Yeah, and I think with people getting out and seeing the kids and interacting with them, it helps build relationships. It helps yeah. improve your school, your school culture. It improves just everything about, you know, what you want to see in a school. You probably have less discipline problems because the kids see that you're out there and you're visible. And, and it's more fun. You get to know the kids. They get to know you as well. Oh, yeah. No, no there's no doubt. Like I said, you know, one of my favorite things as an AP was just the bus lane in the morning, you know, our buses start getting there at, uh, oh, excuse me. Our buses start getting there at six 30 in the morning. School started at seven ten. There were some cold mornings out there, but I think just, just to be there so that those kids get off the bus and see, you know, Mr. Four is out there. He cares about us, you know, giving the kids high fives, fist bumps as just as they're getting off the bus. I mean, that was one of my favorite parts, you know, about being an assistant principal right there, because uh, you, you would get kids pulling you aside, telling you stuff about what they were, you know, had to deal with overnight or asking for advice with a girlfriend or, you know, hey, how do I talk to this teacher? You know, this teacher's being crazy for listen to what, you know, this teacher's doing and 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 being able to, you know, listen and then go, hey, why, why don't you know, why don't I go in there today with you at lunch and you know, you and I can have a talk with the teacher because you need to see their point of view, you know? And so um, that I just, I love that about working with kids. Yeah, I, I like it too. Uh, you're now the principal of Palmdale Aerospace Academy. I read that you got your application in the day before they were due. Uh, what drew you there and what took you so long to get the application in? I, I love being, I, I, I really love being an assistant principal. Um, a buddy of mine had told me about that job over there. Uh, he was in the area uh, and, and told me to check it out. You know, hey, there's this great school um, over here looking for a principal. I think you'd be a great fit. I know some people there. I, I just I, I think you would really love it. So um, I looked into it and I think part of it was just um, uh, I was looking for something closer to home, Tony, because it is an hour away, you know. and so. Um, that, that was part of it. Part of it, honestly, was, was going to work, you know, at a charter school. Um, I just, I wanted to really make sure I did all my due diligence with it. And so I, I did, I, I just took the time to, you know, reach out to some, some people through my buddy that, you know, he knew over there just to try to talk to some folks, uh, in that area, learn a little more about the school. Um, and like I said, just, just really work hard to figure out what kind of culture we're going into over there. Um, and I, I just found, you know, every, every time I did research, talked to people over there, different coaches in the area who know the school or new people there, everything came back that, you know, they, they were real excited about the place and, and the future of the school and, and, uh, just what's been going on there lately. So it's, it's been great. And it's gotta be a pretty cool curriculum that you see. It's an aerospace Academy I read so you got kids flying drones and robotics and and all kinds of stuff. Does does that make it more fun for you to see something so entirely different in a school? 
Oh yeah, no, absolutely. And you know, unfortunately that was definitely something that drew me to it because it's a STEM, it's a STEM charter school, STEM based charter school, you know? So um, what, what we're doing, the community and the school district and the aerospace industry out there in 2012, all, all three of those entities kind of got together to start this school to develop a, a, a homegrown workforce for the aerospace industry. And so it's, it's really interesting to, to see and hear stories of our alumni. You know, there was a gal who was talking to our seventh grade, seventh graders last week who she was an intern in our, our we got a pretty cool intern program that kids gets kids working out at Lockheed Martin and, and Skunk Works and some of these places. And so she had started an internship in high school that turned into a full-time position uh, when she was 19 years old out there. Um, and, and now they're paying for her to go to school. So she's taking classes at night, working 10 hours a day um, on air, you know, as an airplane mechanic. And that's just, that's an awesome thing about, about our school and what they're doing. And yeah, it is, it is very different. You know, we, we don't even, we don't even have football and I'm a, you know, I'm a career football guy going to a school without football, which is kind of weird, but um, it's, it, it has been a whole different side of education with the STEM based. Uh, every kid has, has uh, quite a few units they need to take uh, in STEM to graduate from that school. So like if you're a junior and you didn't go to our school, there's, there's no way you could transfer in and catch up, you know, because, because of the science, technology, engineering, and math classes you have to take. So it's, uh, it, it's, it's been uh, very interesting. I'm just, I've been bummed. Obviously we haven't been on campus this year. You know, they've got a, a state of the art robotics lab. Uh, that's like two stories. Um, NASA has developed, uh, spent a lot of money on helping to develop uh, that program over the years. And so it's, it's pretty neat to be in a place like that. That's awesome. And it's real world stuff. And, you know, yeah. you get to talk to the kids when they come back to the school, say, Hey, what are you doing? And they're like, well, you know what, coach, it's top secret. I can't tell you. <laughs> that's exact. Actually, that's exactly it. This gal the other day talking to the class, uh, uh, the teacher asked her, you know, cause she graduated, I don't know, three or four years ago. Teacher asked what her boyfriend was doing. Her boyfriend was also graduate school. And she goes, oh, he works in a different uh, a different sector out here. Um, and I don't know exactly what he does. He can't talk to me about it. And I thought, man, that is that is pretty cool. Yeah, that's pretty neat. That's classic. Um, uh, you know, the direction of the games today, you're a football guy. I'm a football guy. And we see all this travel stuff. Even now, the, the emergence of club football to get these kids playing I, you know, I'm I'm not a fan of it, but eventually, do you think we're going to see some high school sports just go the way of the 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 eight track? I do, sadly, I do. I think in some communities it will. Uh, you know, Tony, 2014, I was at a school called Oak Hills High School up here in in Hesperia. I was teaching uh, special ed. I was a varsity football coach, coaching special teams. <coughs> Excuse me. And uh, there was one weekend. We were missing kids from practice, uh, not during the season. It was during the off season. We were missing kids from practice who were out with their own club seven on seven program, and it hit me there, you know, six years ago, going, okay, we got we got kids missing our stuff at their high school for club football, <clears throat> and I thought, man, this is unique. And so I started making some calls around other people. You know, I was like, is is it? Because that was my first year at Oak Hills. Is this just an Oak Hills issue or is this, are, are my other buddies seeing this at other places? 
And, and yeah, I found out as I made some calls around Southern California to head coaches, yes, it was happening. Now, there were some places, uh, you know, San Clemente High School where uh, Sam Darnold went to school down there for Coach Ortiz, who's a friend of mine. You know, Sam never played on one club seven on 17. Um, obviously a real talented guy, pretty unique situation there. But but even there, you know, he doesn't have a lot of kids playing on club teams out of that program at all. There's some schools where it's just it's not going to be, you know, they're not going to lose anybody. But this mentality in 2010, Tony, I had a girl at Capital Valley Christian not play on our varsity soccer team her senior year because her club coach told her not to. Um, last year out at Yucca Valley last spring, I had a, a softball player um, who's she had signed. I'm not going to say who, but she had signed a, a scholarship to play college softball. Her college softball coach told her, don't play high school softball. Just stay, stay with your club. That is absolutely going to impenetrate high school football. There's a lot of people out there who think it won't. I absolutely think it will, um, without a doubt. And, and I've been saying that for six years. There will come a day when kids do not play high school football. They just play club football. And I didn't think it happened this quick with the tackle portion of it. Obviously, COVID-19 has, has sped that up. But I've, I've been saying for a few years, and there's some people who think I'm crazy. I, I don't I don't care. But I think we're going to see kids not even play tackle football, just seven-on-seven seven club football, and get recruited to go play college. Um, that's that's going to that's gonna happen too. Uh, maybe not now that this club football is taken off. We'll kind of see how that ends up all working out. But I really think that's what we're going to see too is the emergence of club speeding up here club football with COVID-19 in some communities you're going to see quid kids quitting their high school football team just to focus on their club and there's guys who say oh why would a kid quit their you know playing Friday night lights in their own community for to go play football in a park on Saturday I'm sorry but kids are doing that the kids been doing that for years now there's a high school up by me Adelanto High School 25 transfers in one year those kids all transferring in there to that high school, they all left their supposed quote-unquote home high school for that school. And so um, I, I, you know, I, I hate to see it. I hope I'm absolutely 100% dead wrong. I hope club football doesn't have hit, hit a drop in the bucket and that every single high school football program in California keeps going full steam ahead and they don't lose any kids. The reality of it, why would we not see – club football happen just like it's done to every other sport and um yeah now let's be proactive to kind of maybe not stop it but just say hey look your your high school is is a very valuable experience as well because you can still get the scholarship you can still get exposure you know coaches still have contacts with coaches at that next level but i think it's and and we see it now with these eight nine ten year old teams traveling all over the country you know, yeah. in Florida to go play some world championship, you know, youth football Super Bowl where, you know, little Johnny gets a trophy and in three years he's not going to remember what it was for. Yep. Yep. No, absolutely. And, you know, I, I had a buddy say to me the other day, he, he's in youth football. And he said, you know, he's kind of now evaluating with this, this thing with club football. He said, Chris, I get a lot of kids who once they, gra <clears throat> once they graduate eighth grade, They've played football with us for five, six, seven years, but they don't want to go play at their high school. What if I just extended our Pop Warner program 
what if we made a high school club team or two? He said, I guarantee you, I would be able to keep together a good nucleus who don't want to go play at their high schools that would keep playing if, if we had a, an extension of our youth football program. And so I thought, you know, boy, that's something I've never heard anybody say before. But um, that's something that we could see if these club stuff takes off. That's something we could see happening as well is kids maybe not playing at their high school and, and just continuing to play with their Pop Warner organization. If, if Pop Warner expands into uh, high school football, that, that's another thing that, that we could see happening. Man, it's, it's just crazy. Um, let's talk about your, your books. You're an author. What was the impetus behind writing these books? You help people get jobs with, and you help with resumes and, and stuff like that. But what was the, the impetus behind, you know, your hidden yards, making special teams um, a, a collection of resources? You've got man versus zone schemes, um, championship caliber football programs, the shield punt. What, what got you into writing books? Uh, getting fired in 2011. Uh, <laughs> honestly, I, in 2011, when I lost that job at Capital Valley Christian, Tony, I, I started a website, coach4.org. The reason I started that, I've always kind of been an outside-the-box thinker. And I thought, you know what? Uh, you know, 10 years ago, no coaches had really their not, – not many – had their own website to promote themselves to go get a job. And so I thought, you know what, I'm going to, I had a kid of mine, Phil Wilhelm running back. He helped me create a website coach4.org where I was going to build 10 pages. Uh, here's my practice plan. Here's my summer calendar. Here's my playbook. Here's my uh, philosophy and, you know, working with parents. Here's some parent meeting agendas. I was going to put all these up there. I, I did. I, I built a website with just 10 pages. And I was sending that out to help me get a job. You know, as I reached out to principals and ADs, um, you know, we put a couple video clips on there of, of me, you know, that I had talking to my team in different formats. And and uh, and then I had different newspaper clippings on there of times, you know, teams been in the media or whatever. I thought, hey, this would be a great way to market myself, you know, as I try to get a new job. And then at the same time, I got on Twitter. My Phil is the guy who told me, hey, there's this thing called Twitter. You should get on there. Help to spread some of this stuff too. And so um, that was 2010 or 11, like I said. So as I started to share some articles, um, I started to realize, you know, I love writing and I, I've always loved writing, but I, I had never written real a lot about football. And so I just started writing more articles on my site and then I would just tweet those out there. And, and I remember hitting 50 followers and I thought, man, fit, there's 50 dudes who want to know what I'm saying. That's pretty stinking cool, you know? And then just hearing from other guys in the country, all around the country, like, hey, you, you know, how, I saw you, you sent out this practice script for Thursdays. And, you know, that's, that's a pretty cool thing. Can, can you tell me more about it? And so I would go write an article about that, you know? And so I just, pretty soon I just started going, gosh, there's, there's some, some coaches out there who, who like what I'm putting out there. And um, also in 2011, you know, like I said, I just uh, lost that job and, Basically, when, when you're told we can go find someone better, you know, I wanted to find out, okay, well, I took that year, 2011, I took off of coaching and I decided to go study a bunch of great coaches. And I, um, I had reached out to 300 coaches who won a state championship in 2010, just through emails. And I heard back from 108 of them. And, uh, 
I'd ask them each three questions about their program and how they had success as I was kind of trying to reshape my philosophy and my vision for being a head coach and kind of questioning everything I had done about being a head coach. And that's, that's how I wrote that first book, Building Championship Caliber Football Programs. It was, you know, I featured 100, 106 coaches from 40 states who, who won state championships. And I just really fell in love with, with writing. And at the end of the day, I, you know, I, I think I've written more than about 500 articles or so on coach4.org and then just, you know, built a, a pretty good audience of folks who like that stuff. And then thought, you know what, why not turn some of these into, uh, into books where you can make a little side money to buy my kids Christmas presents and take them to the coast. And now from 50 followers to over 13 and a half thousand followers, I'd say it's it's the word is getting out. Uh, you know, Chris, I we could go all day. I, I loved this conversation. We could keep talking um, just about so many things. Um, I'm glad we got to connect. I know we follow each other on Twitter, and I love seeing your stuff. But before I let, let you go, I want to ask you five questions, and you are a San Diego native. So these are all San Diego related. Uh-oh. Okay. Favorite Padre ever. Oh, outstanding. Uh, easy. Tony Gwynn. Okay. No doubt. Favorite Padre moment. Oh, boy. I would say 1984 when they when they clinched a championship against uh, the Chicago Cubs to go to the World Series. I was, uh, I think, eight years old. And then it all came to a screeching halt when Goose Gossage fed that ball to Gibson that I don't think has landed yet. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yep, yep, yep. Your favorite Charger player. Junior Seau, uh, absolutely. And your favorite Charger moment? Uh, when they won to go to the Super Bowl, 1994 against the Pittsburgh Steelers at on the road at Pittsburgh. Uh, they batted down, a, I think it was a fourth down pass. Bat, I can't remember who knocked it down, but they knocked it down in the end zone. Never forget seeing Junior run crazy um back towards his sideline that no doubt that's that's when it was we, we're not going to talk about that super bowl no now. no you don't but, you don't want to i think the niners but, just scored again though yeah <laughs> you yeah you remember that well but no that was an amazing win i was uh in junior college at uh we 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 were part of uh funny story tony real quick there was an ad in the newspaper we were up in reading moved with three guys from Fallbrook up there to go to junior college. And there's an article in the paper. I read the paper every, every Sunday I read the paper and there was an article in the paper saying, are there any charger fans in Redding, California? Please call me. And so I showed that to my buddies and we called them and he said, Hey, my wife owes me dinner at the best steakhouse in town. If I can find 25 charger fans and long story short, we found there are 150 charger fans that year who started the Northern California San Diego Charger fan club. And then that year they end up going to the Super Bowl. So that was a really, really fun season. That's awesome. And even though this, the grand old lady's going to be gone soon, your favorite moment or experience, they call it Qualcomm or whatever it is, but I still call it the Murph. Oh, the Murph. Absolutely. I'll, I'll give you two if that's okay. Perfect. My first, first favorite memory is with my grandfather and my dad, my first uh, Padre game, 1981 or 82. I remember it like yesterday. I sat right between those men, uh, Plaza Section 26. Um, he had my, my dad had season tickets through his company, and so he would get you know a couple games a month. So 
Um, that was it. Fa- favorite memory there. My second will be my last one there, Tony. I took both of my boys um, for the first time, just the three of us, just the three of us went to a football game last December, the Holiday Bowl, USC versus Iowa. And we sat like in Plaza 22 or something. Um, but I went and found those same seats where, where I sat with my dad, about the same area. I couldn't remember the exact row, but you know, just to be there with my two boys, uh, my dad and grandfather since passed, but it was just a really cool experience. And I sat there before the game going like, man, I can't, you know, there was a lot of talk. This might be one of the last events happening at this stadium. And it, it made me sad, but I really cherish and relish that game with my two sons. Yeah. As, as, as fathers, we always like taking our kids out to things and, and it's, it's the memories that we will take with us and, and I'm going to miss the Murph. And yes, it was dilapidated and she was falling apart. And hopefully they do something something nice there for the Aztecs and they can get that football program off the ground and, and get some more success. Yeah, it's been it's been fun watching them have some success this year. I think, a, you know, a new stadium down there is going to be a, a fun thing to see. Yeah. Well, Chris, I want to thank you again for taking the time to do this. Um, you know, I, I like I said before, I admire your stuff. I've been on the website. Um, I'm going to take a look at some of those articles and, and just, you know, hopefully we can get these kids back at school. I know you, you're a principal, you haven't had kids there yet. Um, I'm waiting for our kids to get back on campus and, and get these kids back out on the athletic fields or whatever, as, as soon as possible. Yeah, I hope so too. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's just, it's, it's not a good thing, not a good way for them to learn, not a good way for them to be stuck at home. But, you know, right now we just got to rely on, uh, everybody doing their part, you know, uh, following the health county department guidelines and hopefully we'll be able to get this thing, you know, get this thing controlled at some point this school year. Yeah. Let's get this thing turned around and, and thanks again, Chris. And a reminder to everybody, just follow the protocols. Don't be, don't be ignorant of everything, you know, do what you need to do because there's a lot more at stake than just you being selfish because you want to go out somewhere. Let's, let's get this thing back to normal as soon as possible. Uh, Chris Ford, thanks again. And to everybody that's listening, enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.